Hey, Real Narcos listeners, John Cuban here. We hope you enjoy this preview of Noiser's new podcast, Detectives Don't Sleep, the show that takes you beyond the police tape to shadow the real detectives who worked history's most intriguing cases. In this episode, we're following famed LA detective Leslie Zoller as he cracks one of the biggest investigations of his career. What starts off as a simple missing persons case quickly snowballs into a tale of murder and conspiracy beyond even the most seasoned cop's wildest imagination. And at the center of it all is a mysterious organization known as the Billionaire Boys Club. If you enjoy it and want to hear more, subscribe to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes. It's June 7th, 1984, at the Beverly Hills Police Department. Detective Leslie Zoller swallows the last of his coffee, wipes his mustache, and strides back to his desk where his phone is ringing. It's a typically busy day in 90210, a zip code famous for its A-list celebrity homes, luxury hotels, and upscale shopping districts. Zoller's been serving as a Beverly Hills cop for almost a decade now. It's a glamorous, glitzy beat, populated with movie stars and billionaires. But despite this, the crimes committed here can be every bit as dark as in any other city. And the phone call he's about to answer will begin one of the most disturbing cases in Zoller's career. On the other end of the line is a woman named Blanche Sturkey. She sounds frantic as she tells Zoller that her employer, Mr. Ron Levin, has gone missing. Grabbing his pen, Zoller asks for the details. Blanche tells him that Ron is a 42-year-old single man who lives alone on South Peck Drive with a small dog named Kosher. He's about six foot one, has white hair, a beard, and typically dresses in impeccably tailored suits. Blanche is his housekeeper, and she's certain that something dreadful must have happened to him. She explains that yesterday afternoon, Ron told her that he was planning on leaving for New York City early the next day. He said he was going on a business trip with two young friends who were coming to pick him up at around 7 a.m. However, when those two men arrived this morning to collect him, nobody answered the door. They then noticed that Ron's alarm system wasn't on, which was strange as Ron always set the alarm before leaving the house. Fearing that he might be in trouble, they phoned Blanche, who immediately came over with her spare keys. But when the three of them gained access to the property, there was no sign of Ron. However, his beloved little kosher was still there, visibly shaking and having peed the carpet. There were a number of other odd things, Blanche explains. For instance, it doesn't seem as though Ron has taken anything with him. His address book is still on the premises, and Blanche insists Ron never goes anywhere without that. Zoller asks the housekeeper if anything seems to have been stolen from the property. She doesn't think so, despite the home boasting an impressive art collection, as well as many expensive objets d'art. 
Unfortunately, Zoller tells Blanche he can't file a missing persons report for at least 48 hours. If Ron hasn't resurfaced by then, she should call back. But as soon as the call ends, Zoller turns to the nearest computer. He's pretty sure he's heard the name Ron Levin before, probably from other cops. Running it through the system, it soon becomes apparent that Ron Levin is not just any missing person. According to his case file, Ron is currently out on bail. He has 10 counts of grand larceny against him. If convicted of these crimes, he faces a potential eight-year prison sentence. It immediately occurs to Zoller that Levin may have skipped town ahead of his approaching trial. A fair assumption, given his impressive rap sheet. But little does Detective Zoller know that this case is far more complex than it appears. Over the coming weeks, shocking secrets will emerge surrounding the life of Ron Levin and the dangerous company he keeps. As Zoller tries to make sense of what's happened, he'll delve into a world of money-hungry yuppies and high-functioning con artists, people who embody the most extreme cartoonish stereotypes of Reagan-era America. It sounds like a story ripped from the pages of American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. But this story is true. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're following famed L.A. detective Leslie Zoller as he cracks one of the biggest investigations of his career. What starts off as a simple missing persons case quickly snowballs into a tale of murder and conspiracy beyond even the most seasoned cop's wildest imagination. Solving it will take months of dedication, but that's the thing about great detectives. They're all in. They never truly rest until they've closed the case. From Noiser, this is the story of the Billionaire Boys Club. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Two days later, Ron's mother, Carol Levin, phones Zoller to say that her son is still missing. By now, Zoller has already begun looking into the Levin case. His theory that Ron skipped town ahead of trial has evolved. It appears that the handsome businessman isn't who he appears to be. If the files and the rumors are to be believed, Ron is a con artist on a grand scale. His wealthy lifestyle based entirely on false presentation, fraudulent activities, and broken promises. Throughout his 20s and 30s, Ron set up dozens of businesses, including record companies, advertising agencies, and a mail-order firm called the Super Sex Catalog. He'd order stock and costly equipment from suppliers, but when the enterprises failed, Ron would keep it all, rarely paying back what he owed. So the lawsuits piled up and he gained a reputation 
as a deeply untrustworthy businessman. But recently, his methods have become even more brazen. You see, now he's begun setting up bank accounts all over L.A. with small sums in them. He even has a Swiss bank account, though there's less than $200 in it. This hasn't stopped him writing six-figure checks. Through these fraudulent payments, he'd spoil himself with the newest designer clothes, least beautiful sports cars, and appear to the world like a bona fide millionaire. Bizarrely, not long before he disappeared, Ron had even been accused of swindling $130,000 worth of camera equipment. Kind of odd for a guy who didn't even work in the film industry. It seems he doesn't really care how many bouncing checks he leaves in his wake, just as long as he can keep living the high life. And given Ron's habit of spending other people's money, it seems plausible to Detective Zoller that he could have run afoul of some dangerous people. On the phone, Zoller asks Carol what she knows about Ron's more recent dealings but she angrily accuses him of being more interested in investigating her son's alleged crimes than in finding him. She insists that her son is just an innocent businessman and hangs up. Zoller decides to interview Ron's friends and business associates. Perhaps they'll reveal more than his doting mother is prepared to. It turns out Ron's a popular guy. By all accounts, he's one of the most charming men in the city. He counts major stars like Muhammad Ali, Jack Nicholson, and Andy Warhol among his closest friends. With his wicked sense of humor, he's a fixture at society dinner parties and frequents the most exclusive night spots in town. Friends describe him as fun, loyal, and with an astonishingly high IQ, of 186, and although he isn't open about his love life, most of them are sure he's gay. He certainly likes to surround himself with handsome young men. However, even those who speak of him affectionately will attest to the shadiness of his character. Apparently, he openly describes himself as a con man and even boasts about how he rips people off. He not only thrives on deception, but seems to enjoy it. Given all of Ron's shady dealings, the possibility of homicide strikes Zoller as more and more likely. He sends Ron's dental records to the Unidentified Persons Program in Sacramento, just in case his body shows up somewhere. Zoller has teams of people out looking for Levin, dead or alive. But for someone so well-known in the city, he's proving difficult to track down. Meanwhile, all Zoller can do is wait. The first break in the case comes nearly two months into the investigation. Zoller learns that on June 7th, 1984, the day after Ron was reported missing, someone tried to cash one of his checks for over $1.5 million. 
Unfortunately for the person concerned, the account had only $40 in it. Considering Ron's habit of writing out checks that he can't cash, this isn't necessarily suspicious. Apart from one thing, it was dated for June 6th, the same day that Ron went missing. So could the person who tried to cash the check be behind Ron's disappearance? Detective Zoller decides to find out who it was and fast. Luckily, he doesn't have long to wait. In early August, Zoller is contacted by a pair of young men through their attorney. They claim to have information about the disappearance of Ron Levin. What they tell him will take this case to a whole new level. It's August 9th, 1984. Zoller will always remember it as the day he first heard about the Billionaire Boys Club. It sounds like a celebration of conspicuous wealth, but the truth is much darker than that. Zoller sits in a glass-walled office overlooking Beverly Hills. Seated across the table from him are Tom and Dave May, twins in their early 20s and heirs to the May Company department store fortune. The May twins are both tall, handsome, and dressed impeccably in Armani suits. High-waisted baggy trousers, double-breasted jackets, long ties tightly knotted at the top, billowing at the bottom. You know, that 80s look. With the formalities out of the way, the twins tell Zoller all about it. All about an organization called the Billionaire Boys Club, or BBC for short, and its shocking connection to Ron Levin. They explain that the BBC was founded last year by a childhood friend who they'd first met at the Harvard School for Boys in L.A. His name is Joe Hunt. Although the twins explained that back when they first met him, he had been called Joe Gamsky. Apparently, he'd changed his name because he wanted people to think he was related to the Texas oil tycoons called the Hunt Brothers. They say that Joe was a quiet kid from a lower middle-class background who got into their prestigious school on a scholarship. Incredibly bright but socially awkward, most of his classmates were the sons of wealthy families. They had little time for this geeky kid who couldn't afford the right clothes. After school, the Mays lost touch with him until the early months of 1983 when he reappeared in L.A. at the age of 24 with his new name, Hunt, and what seemed like a personality transplant. Reconnecting with all his former classmates, Joe seemed much more confident. He'd spent the intervening years working as a floor trader in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and was presenting himself as some kind of investment guru. Joe gathered together a group of promising young men from the wealthiest families in Beverly Hills and announced that he was starting an elite investors club. Joe originally called it the BBC after the Bombay Bicycle Club, a restaurant he used to frequent in Chicago. 
but it soon became known as the Billionaire Boys Club. Joe was incredibly persuasive, Tom says, and all the guys who'd once looked down their noses at him were now clamoring to join his exclusive group. Joe wanted these privileged young people to persuade their moneyed parents and high society contacts to invest in the club. The BBC would then put that money into up-and-coming, can't-lose companies, resulting in huge returns for the investors. Ah, word got around. The money started rolling in. And as soon as it did, Joe and the boys began spending it. Joe's attitude was that they needed to look the part if they were to gain the trust of future investors. So they gave themselves all the trappings of success, expensive cars, pricey watches, luxury apartments. They even had a swanky office on the fifth floor of the Wells Fargo building in West Hollywood. There, Joe would regale the others with inspiring speeches. He dismissed people outside of their club as normies. He talked philosophy a lot, which really impressed the boys. For instance, Joe once asked his members if they could ever kill a man. Everyone said no. But then Joe asked, what if that man was violently attacking your mother? This time, the answer was different. Under those circumstances, yes, they would kill. This was Joe's paradox philosophy, the matrons explained to Detective Zoller. A bad thing being a good thing under another context. The ends justifying the means. Zoller asked the twins how the rest of the BBC took this kind of talk. Were they repelled by it? <laughs> Quite the opposite. If anything, it drew many of them even closer. The BBC became like a cult. Gradually, core members would split up with girlfriends, fight with parents, and entangle themselves further with Joe and the BBC. Joe's two most faithful disciples were Dean Carney and Ben Dosti. These boys all moved into a high-rise luxury condo together above Wilshire Boulevard, a property that boasted A-list neighbors Julie Andrews and Mr. T. The BBC was on the up. There was only one snag. The commodity investments they were making weren't always as successful as Joe had hoped. To cover these losses, he was paying out his original investors with money provided by the newer investors. Detective Zoller knows a Ponzi scheme when he sees one. Then, the twins get to the part of the story that Zoller has been waiting for. In May 1983, Joe encountered an affluent businessman at the advanced screening party for Superman 3. This white-bearded, well-dressed 40-something took an immediate shine to handsome Joe. Joe, in turn, was impressed by how rich the man seemed to be. They spoke for hours and became fast friends. It seemed that Joe had ensnared a potential new investor for the BBC. 
Zoller asked the twins what the man's name was. After an awkward glance at his attorney, Tom confirms what Zoller has already guessed. Ron Levin. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. The May twins explained to Zoller how, over the following weeks, Joe and Ron became inseparable. The two men regularly dined together and would discuss Joe's grand business ideas. Ron was wonderful company, and Joe would invite him to all his glitzy parties. A month after the first meeting, Levin told Joe some spectacular news. He wanted to put up $5 million for Joe to trade in the commodities market. Then they would split the profits. Ron introduced Joe to Jack Friedman of Clayton Brokerage, with whom he'd set up the account. Ron explained that Joe would have to trade over the phone to Friedman, who would then carry out his instructions and send him regular statements. Joe was thrilled. This was exactly the lifeline he and the BBC had been waiting for. Within just a few months, Joe was able to bring the original $5 million up to $13 million, meaning that he was entitled to $4 million in profit. It was a huge vindication for Joe. Despite the BBC's losses in other areas, he now had the statements to prove that he was a genius trader after all. But there was one problem. Joe still hadn't received the money he was owed. In fact, Ron was now proving evasive whenever Joe tried to talk to him. Months passed. Joe became increasingly anxious. Was he ever going to get his money? Toward the end of the year, he decided to phone Clayton Brokerage to discuss it. When Jack Friedman answered the phone, he sounded delighted to hear from the young trader. But his first question puzzled Joe. What happened with the story that you and Ron Levin were doing on the trading? Joe asked the broker what he meant, and that was when Friedman dropped the bombshell. So when did you learn that the Levin account wasn't real, he asked. It seemed that Clayton Brokerage had been under the impression that Ron Levin was a TV producer for a company called Network News. He claimed that they were making a TV documentary about commodities trading and Ron wanted Friedman to appear in it. 
Thinking it would be a great advertisement for the firm, Friedman had agreed. So, Ron showed up with a large camera crew and interviewed him in his office. Ron had then asked Friedman to let him set up a bogus account in his name for a hotshot trader named Joe Hunt to play with. The trader wouldn't be told that the money wasn't real until soon after the documentary was finished. The stunning truth was crashing in on Joe. The Levin account, as well as the statements he'd been sent, had only been a simulation, and a cruel one at that. Joe Hunt was understandably furious. From what the May twins were told, Joe went straight to Ron's duplex. When Ron answered the door, he was wearing a bathrobe and holding his little dog kosher in his arms. Joe confronted Ron about the fake account. Why on earth would he pull such a bizarre, elaborate stunt? Now listen close, because the answer to that question can be a bit confusing for those of us who aren't multi-million dollar scam artists. Remember how Ron makes his living by setting up fake accounts, using them to write checks that he knows full well will bounce? Essentially, the whole documentary ruse with Clayton Brokerage was just an extension of that. When the brokerage agreed to do Ron's bogus documentary, they also agreed to provide fake account statements. Ron then brought these multi-million dollar statements to banks and used them as leverage to take out big loans. Joe Hunt was just a pawn in another one of Ron's outlandish get-rich-quick schemes. After Ron explained all this, he assured Joe that he wasn't planning on scamming him. He'd invested the loans in some big projects that he was sure would turn a major profit. Joe would get his money when those loans paid out, Ron said as he stroked the dog. But that didn't placate Joe at all. In fact, from that day forth, whenever he spoke of Ron Levin to the other BBC members, it was always with undisguised hatred. So, Zoller needs a break, his head's spinning. It's a lot to take in, right? Out the window, the sprawl of Los Angeles extends to the ocean. Countless boulevards, streets, and back streets. So easy to pick a route with a bird's eye view. But on the ground, just like working a case, so easy to take a wrong turn into a blind alley. The interview with the May twins resumes. They tell him that on June 24, 1984, a BBC meeting had been held in the luxury condo where Joe Hunt lived. This was two weeks into Ron Levin's disappearance, Zoller notes. A select group of BBC members were there, including the May twins. Also present was Jim Pittman, the BBC's intimidating head of security and a former athlete. Essentially, Jim was Joe's muscle, the twins explained to Zoller. The room was buzzing with discontent. By now, Joe had frittered away over $900,000 of his investors' money. And considering how Levin had played him, a lot of the boys had lost faith in him as their leader. But Joe told them he had something very sensitive to announce that he hoped would regain their trust but if anyone present feels they can't handle it, they should leave now. 
Nobody budged, so he continued. Jim Pittman and I knocked off Ron Levin. A horrible pause hung over the room. Then there were a few snickers. It was obvious that many of the boys thought he was just fooling around, but the May twins believed him. Joe ended the meeting by heavily hinting that if any of them want to go to the police, they too would be dealt with like Ron Levin. Zoller is astonished by what the May twins have told him. I mean, wouldn't you be? A secret society of money-grabbing young bucks prepared to do anything, even kill, for profit? It sounds like the plot of a Marxist horror film. But he has to admit that a lot of what he's heard tallies with the things he's already learned. Okay, remember when Zoller discovered that Levin owed a company around $130,000 for camera equipment? Well, his fake TV documentary explains what that was for. He must have used the expensive equipment to convince Clayton Brokerage that his project was legitimate. Zoller calls Levin's parents. It's time to take a look inside Ron's duplex. On August 16th, one week after his explosive interview with the May Twins, Detective Zoller heads to Ron Levin's home on South Peck Drive in Beverly Hills. Removing his sunglasses, Zoller rings the doorbell of the impressive duplex. Ron's stepfather, Martin, answers. Zoller shows him his ID. Martin welcomes the detective into Ron's home while holding his stepson's small dog, Kosher, in his arms. First, Zoller inspects the bedroom. There's no sign of any struggle. No visible blood stains on the white walls and carpet. Perhaps Joe Hunt was bluffing after all. Zoller asks Martin if anything looks out of place. He tells him that the green bedspread looks unfamiliar. Could the killer have murdered Ron on the bed and replaced the linens? It's a stretch, but Martin insists he's found more evidence of foul play. He takes Zoller into Ron's study and shows him a waste paper basket beside Ron's desk. Inside are seven pages from a legal notepad. All of them have been scribbled on. At the top are the words, at Levens in block capitals. Under that is written, to do, underlined. What follows is a list of instructions. Close blinds, scan for tape recorder, tape mouth, handcuff, put gloves on. Zoller looks up at Martin in surprise. It appears that he's discovered somebody's to-do list for how to assault and abduct Ron Levin. Zoller asks him if he recognizes the handwriting. Martin shakes his head. Reading on, Zoller becomes even more intrigued. Put answering service on, the document says. Get alarm access code. Kill dog. Use corporate seal. Have Levin sign documents. Carefully, Zoller places the papers onto the desk and tells Martin 
not to touch him again. He'll get forensics down here to bag them as evidence. By the time Zoller leaves Ron's duplex, he's left behind the notion that the con man skipped town to avoid his trial date. No, this really is a murder investigation. And if the May twins were telling the truth, then Detective Zoller already has a prime suspect in Joe Hunt. It's September 28th, 1984. For the past month, Detective Zoller has been doggedly investigating Joe Hunt, collecting the evidence needed to bring him in. And now, he's finally sitting in an interrogation room across the table from the man himself. Joe Hunt is every bit the cocky, fast-talking financier the May twins have made him out to be. He seems at ease, confident, flashing his Hollywood smile as he answers Detective Zoller's questions. He hasn't even asked for a lawyer. Zoller asks Hunt how he first met Ron Levin. Hunt's account of their first meeting closely matches the one that the May twins gave. He confirms that Ron tricked him into thinking he had invested $5 million with the BBC, and he admits to being furious when he learned of the deceit. I last saw him in early June, Joe says. But without a calendar, I can't be more specific. Zoller then brings up the BBC meeting that took place in his condo on June 24th. He asks if it's true that Joe confessed to killing Ron Levin with the help of a man named Jim Pittman. Hunt smiles like he's been expecting this question. He admits he did say this, but it isn't true. The speech was simply a motivational tactic, he insists. He only wanted to hype up a room full of excitable young men who were feeling low after losing money on their investments. He was hoping they'd appreciate his provocative sense of humor. Of course, he didn't actually kill Ron Levin. But his easy manner shifts when Detective Zoller pulls out the macabre list found in Ron Levin's apartment. What do you know about these, Zoller says, dropping the papers in front of him. Zoller watches with satisfaction as the color drains out of Hunt's face. Without skipping a beat, he asks Hunt if this is his handwriting. Hunt's silence suggests that it is. Making bad taste jokes is one thing, but this is hard evidence of a premeditated assault that won't look good in front of a jury. I don't want to answer that without my attorney, Hunt stammers. It turns out to be a good move. Hunt's defense attorney gets him released without charge. If this sounds strange, now just remember that regardless of the list, there's no actual evidence that Ron Levin has been harmed. He could reappear at any moment. Zola responds with a warrant to search Hunt's condo. He doesn't find anything directly linking him to a murder, but he does retrieve handwriting samples 
which he sends to an expert analyst. But the truth is, Joe won't be easy to prosecute. Even if Hunt's handwriting matches the list, the defense could argue that it was just written to scare Ron into paying back what he owed. Still, Zoller's cop instinct is telling him that Joe Hunt killed Ron Levin with the help of his bodyguard, Jim Pittman. He just isn't sure that he has enough yet to put him behind bars. However, very soon Zoller will learn of an unexpected dimension to this case that will change everything. Around the same time that Zoller's investigating the Levin case, 400 miles away in San Francisco, another detective is also searching for a missing person. California Department of Justice agent Oscar Breiling is on the hunt for an Iranian businessman who disappeared from his condo in Belmont, San Mateo County, on July 29, 1984. Hadayat Eslaminia was once a high official in the Shah of Iran's government. But he fled the country when the Ayatollah Khomeini took power. As a result, Eslaminia is hated by those in power in Tehran. So, when his girlfriend first reported his disappearance, it immediately set off alarm bells for U.S. law enforcement. Has Eslamenia been executed by an Iranian hit squad on American soil? If so, it would be a major diplomatic incident. But by mid-October 1984, Agent Breiling begins to suspect that a very different organization is behind Eslamenia's disappearance. You guessed it, the Billionaire Boys Club. Breiling's heard about Detective Zoller's investigation into the disappearance of Ron Levin. You see, a name has come up in his own investigation that links the two cases. That name is Joe Hunt. Agent Breiling gives Zoller a call to compare notes. He explains that Eslamenia's own son, Reza, has become their primary suspect and the Department of Justice believes that Hunt is somehow involved and that Reza is a member of the BBC. Reza is 24 years old and by all accounts has a toxic relationship with his father. Apparently, the two are barely on speaking terms. And yet, on the days following Hedayat's disappearance, Reza was visiting every bank in San Mateo County, looking for accounts bearing his father's name. He had papers which supposedly granted him power of attorney over the $30 million held in his father's name. Eslamenia's business associates told the FBI that this was suspicious for two reasons. For one thing, the diet didn't trust his own son, so he was hardly likely to grant him that kind of access. And secondly, Eslaminia didn't actually have $30 million. Like Ron Levin, he was a man who grossly misrepresented his wealth, even to Reza. Eslaminia's girlfriend told the FBI that Reza had visited her 
a few days before his dad vanished. He had a handsome friend with him, and together they asked if she knew where Hadayat kept his money. She replied that she had no idea. But during their short chat, Reza referred to his father in the past tense, which made her uncomfortable. Was he assuming that Hadayat was already dead? When the FBI asked her who the handsome friend was, she told him that Reza introduced him as my associate Joe Hunt. Zoller is stunned to hear this. It's starting to look like Joe Hunt is involved in the disappearance of not one, but two men. Is the BBC targeting people they think are rich and then abducting them to gain control of their money? Iran Levin and Hadayat Eslaminia still alive somewhere? Or have they been murdered? And is Joe Hunt's influence so powerful that he can convince a son to murder his own father? So far, the only evidence Detective Zoller has against Joe Hunt is circumstantial. What he needs is proof, evidence, that definitively links him to the suspected murders of Ron Levin and Hadayat Eslamenia. As luck would have it, Zoller gets the report back from the handwriting expert in October, not long after his conversation with Agent Bryling. The expert confirms that the to-do list found in Ron's office was indeed written by Joe Hunt. Now Detective Zoller has enough to arrest him. On October 22, 1984, Hunt is charged with murder, special circumstances, in the death of Ron Levin and brought into custody. This time, Detective Zoller is determined to make it stick. But to do that, he'll need more members of the BBC to come forward and testify against their former leader, Joe Hunt. Men like Dean Carney, Joe's right-hand man. Zoller serves Carney with a subpoena. To his surprise, he discovers that Dean is no longer under the BBC's spell. In fact, he agrees to tell the police everything in exchange for immunity. It's the biggest breakthrough of the case so far. It's November 29th, 1984, at the Beverly Hills Police Department. Dean Carney sits in an interrogation room next to his attorney. Zoller is struck by how terrified the young man looks, and it's perhaps not just the police that have got him scared. Dean was Joe Hunt's closest friend in the BBC. Now he's ready to tell him everything he knows about the disappearance of both Ron Levin and Hadayat Eslamenia. But first, he wants assurances, as well as full immunity. He wants to be placed in the witness protection program so that Hunt can't seek revenge. Zoller agrees on one condition, that Dean leads them to the whereabouts of the missing men. Dean tells him that he only knows for sure where Eslamenia is. He reveals that Eslamenia's son, Reza, had wanted to join the BBC so badly that he'd agreed to betray his own father 
He told Joe and Dean that if they staged an abduction, everyone would blame the Iranian government. Then they could force a diet to sign over his supposed $30 million fortune to Reza, who would in turn help the BBC out of their financial problems. Dean explains how Joe Hunt and another BBC member named Ben Dosti went to Eslaminia's home disguised as UPS men. There, they assaulted him and forced him into a large box which they drove to another location. The plan, Dean says, was to torture Eslaminia into signing over his fortune. But it had been a disaster. By the time they arrived at their destination, their victim was dead, suffocated in transit. Dean tells investigators that they then decided to dispose of the body. Without skipping a beat, Detective Zoller orders him to take them to the remains. That very afternoon, they drive out to Angeles National Forest. It's a sprawling expanse of wilderness nestled between the San Gabriel and Sierra Polona Mountains. Filled with dense shrubland and deep ravines, the forest is a place of great beauty. It's also the perfect spot to hide a body. Zoller and an L.A. County coroner's team follow Dean Carney through thick undergrowth and rocky outcroppings. Finally, he leads them to a sloping cliff edge within Soledad Canyon. This is the spot, he says. The investigators scramble down the slope. Suddenly, one of them makes a horrific discovery. 25 feet down, there's a decaying human rib cage that's been fed on by coyotes. Nearby, they find more bones, including a skull. Tests will reveal that these are indeed the remains of missing millionaire Hedayat Eslamenia. Detective Zoller now has a strong case against Joe Hunt for the murder of Eslamenia. But the question still remains, where is Ron Levin? According to Dean's testimony, Ron Levin was killed on the 6th of June, 1984. Hunt and his head of security, Jim Pittman, ambushed Ron in his home and handcuffed him. Brandishing a 25 caliber pistol, they threatened his dog and forced Ron to sign over a check for $1.5 million. After he signed, the two men took Ron into his bedroom and ordered him to lie face down on his bed. Then, Pittman shot him in the head. Dean explains how the killers wrapped Levin's body in a thick comforter, which helped to bandage the head wound before the blood could seep out. Hunt and Pittman carried Levin's body to their car and transported him to Soledad Canyon. They threw him into an open grave that they dug earlier. But before burying him, they repeatedly fired into his body with their shotgun to make identification impossible. They'd supposedly laughed while doing it. 
Zoller wonders if the jury will buy Dean's story. No trace of an unmarked grave can be found in Soledad Canyon, nor any of Levin's remains. To verify Dean's account, they'll need to rely on forensic evidence that the murder really did take place in Levin's house. But when forensic teams searched Ron's bedroom for traces of blood, they found nothing. Zoller knows that without a body or any forensic evidence against him, there's a strong chance that Joe Hunt might be found innocent at his trial. But the detective has done all he can. Now, Joe Hunt's fate rests in the hands of a jury. It's February 2nd, 1987, at the Santa Monica Courthouse, L.A. Three years after Ron Levin went missing, Joe Hunt is finally on trial for his murder. His trial for the kidnapping and murder of Hedayat Eslamenia is scheduled for a later date. It's one of the most publicized court cases in recent memory. Joe seems like such an unlikely killer that it's captured the public's imagination. There's even an upcoming NBC miniseries based on these events, with The Breakfast Club star Judd Nelson playing Joe. However, aside from the incriminating to-do list, there's little physical evidence for the prosecution to work with. No weapon, no bloodstains, no eyewitnesses, and, crucially, no body. As the defense reminds the jury, Ron Levin could still reappear. The defense even manages to produce some witnesses who claim to have seen Ron working as a gas station attendant in Tucson, Arizona. At this point in the trial, it looks like things might be going Joe's way. But all that changes on March 17th, when his former friend Dean Carney takes the stand. Avoiding eye contact with the accused, Dean tells the jury that after learning that Ron had tricked him, Joe openly said, I'm going to kill Ron Levin one day. He proceeds to tell how Ron's death had been premeditated and that Dean himself had been charged with providing an alibi for it. With Joe's girlfriend and another BBC member, Dean had gone to see a movie that night and had purchased a ticket for Joe. A stillness descends over the court as Dean relates how, on the following day, Joe had laughed about shooting up Ron's body before burying it in an undisclosed location. As soon as Dean's testimony is over, he's taken into the Federal Witness Protection Program for his own safety. He will never see his family again. However, his testimony has the required impact. On April 22, 1987, two and a half months after the trial began, the verdict is returned. They find Joe Hunt guilty of murder in the first degree. He's ultimately sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Five years into his sentence in 1992, Joe Hunt is again brought to trial for the Eslaminia murder. 
This time, the prosecution has a lot more to go on. First-hand witness testimony from Hunt's alleged accomplice, Dean Carney, and, of course, a body to prove it. Plus, Joe Hunt has made the utterly bizarre decision to defend himself, despite the fact that he has no formal legal training whatsoever. During his testimony, Hunt doesn't deny participating in the kidnapping of Eslamania, but he does claim that it was Carney who killed him. The trial lasts a staggering nine months, and, shockingly, it ends up in a hung jury. <laughs> Incredible, right? How is this even possible, given all the evidence the prosecution had against him? Well, here's how it went. In spite of his lack of legal training, Joe Hunt put on a masterful performance in the courtroom. He made a very convincing argument and appeared sympathetic. As we said, he's charismatic, he's likable. Several jurors were so convinced by Joe that they offered to help him prove his innocence if the case gets retried. But in another incredible turn of events, the prosecution drops the charges against him in 1993 perhaps fearing another mistrial. This is a true testament to Joe Hunt's magnetism. The very same magnetism that persuaded some of the country's richest and most powerful people to invest millions of dollars in the BBC. To this day, he remains the only person in San Mateo County legal history to defend himself in a capital murder case and not receive the death penalty. As Joe Hunt serves out his life sentence, questions continue to swirl around the exact whereabouts of Ron Levin and whether he'd been murdered at all. In fact, sightings of the missing con artist have become the stuff of legend. Five separate witnesses have come forward to say they've seen Ron Levin alive in far-flung places such as Mykonos in Greece, or even during a funeral at home in Los Angeles. However, in 1973, the BBC bodyguard and Joe's alleged murder accomplice, Jim Pittman, seemed to put an end to the speculation. Tried separately to Joe, Pittman had pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact. After two juries had failed to reach a verdict, Pittman finally received a reduced sentence of just three years and six months' imprisonment. However, in a television interview in 1993, Pittman made this startling confession. Yes, I did kill Ron Levin, but I can't be tried for it twice. It would be like double jeopardy. For many, this extraordinary comment puts an end to any rumors that Ron Levin might still be out there somewhere. As of 2023, Joe Hunt remains incarcerated for Ron Levin's murder. He continues to strongly campaign for his release. His website, Free Joe Hunt, 
persists with the claim that a still-alive Ron Levin framed Joe using the incriminating list found in the waste paper basket. Hunt seems to enjoy a cult-like following, even from inside prison. However, there's at least one man who never doubted that Joe Hunt was guilty of the crime he was charged with. Detective Leslie Zoller passed away in 2021, but in 2018, when asked for his opinion about Joe Hunt, Zoller's reply was unambiguous. Joe doesn't deserve to be out of jail at all. He is a borderline sociopath, in my opinion. And to this day, whether alive or dead, mystery still surrounds the exact whereabouts of Ron Levin. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We're in Chicago. The year, 1913. The Windy City's first female detective, Alice Clement, gets called out to the slums to investigate the death of a young woman. At first glance, it looks like the girl died of typhoid fever, a tragic but all too common ending for Chicago's impoverished population. But Detective Clement has a hunch that there's more to the story, especially when she spies a dulcimer, an expensive stringed instrument perched in the corner of the victim's squalid apartment. Taking out her magnifying glass, she sees something incredible. The strings have been poisoned. But who would go to so much trouble to kill some poor girl? Answering that question will take everything Detective Clements got. She'll go undercover and use her incredible powers of deduction to unmask a killer hiding in plain sight. It's a case that will take the nation by storm, solidifying Alice Clements' reputation as one of America's greatest sleuths. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Detectives Don't Sleep wherever you get your podcasts.